0: First time in uh, Minnesota. It's been a good experience, and uh, looking forward to sharing with you some material today. I want to say up front that um, I do see this as a as a seminar format. So although I've I've got a lot of material to share, uh, I have certain kinds of expertise in in theology and philosophy and some some sort of cultural apologetics and ethics. But uh, you guys have a wealth of pastoral experience that I don't have, and so. I hope, I hope that what I'm giving you will, will stimulate your thinking and there'll be times of sharing, uh, comparing notes, and that we can learn from one another in the course of the day. Well, the first uh, session um, uh, is on uh, really some theological foundations, foundations in biblical uh, anthropology. And I want to introduce this topic by uh, talking a little bit about um, an early childhood memory of mine. Uh, one of my earliest childhood memories is of the sound of Bach's Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 3, wafting across the living room in our home in the south of England. Uh, this was not because my parents were trying to educate me in classical music, although they, they did try and do that relatively unsuccessfully, um, but rather because this, this music was the theme tune to a popular television program that my parents enjoyed, the Antiques Roadshow the Antiques Roadshow. You've probably heard of the Antiques Roadshow. Uh, it was first aired in the United States in 1997, so it's been here for about 20 years, but like, like every great aspect of American culture, it was stolen from Britain. Uh, and uh, we actually invented the Antiques Roadshow. That's been broadcast in the United Kingdom since 1979. And uh, if you haven't seen the show, uh, the premise of it is very simple. Basically, people bring items that have been passed down in their family or that they found in their house or something like that and uh, these items will be examined and appraised by experts uh, antique dealers, antique experts and uh, they will try and uh, figure out what this thing is and they'll give an estimated value, they'll put a valuation on this, uh, this item and uh, the, the, the programme is certainly educational to a degree uh, but it's mainly popular due to its entertainment value. Especially, it's most entertaining when there's a, there's a, a big disparity between the owner's expectation and the specialist's <laughs> actual evaluation. So the, the lady who discovers this uh, dusty old book in her attic uh, is told that this is a, a first edition copy of some 17th century work and it's actually worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow! and then the guy who brings in what he thinks is a rare Ming dynasty vase, uh, which he was hoping to sell and fund his retirement. Uh, Well, he's a little deflated when the expert points out uh, the three little words on the bottom of the vase, made in Taiwan. Uh, So this is what makes the program entertaining. But the central question that drives viewer interest uh, is the question of value and worth. What is, whatever the item is, what is its value? What is its worth? What is it worth? But in order to answer those questions, you have to answer two prior questions. The first question is, what kind of thing is it? What kind of thing is it? The question of its nature. What is the nature of this thing? What kind of thing is it? And then the second question you need to ask is, where did it come from? Where did it come from? What is its origin? So there's two foundational questions, the question of its nature, the question of its origin. And then you can answer the question, what is its value, what is it worth? And then these three questions together invite a fourth question. How should I treat it? How should I treat it? What should I do with it? If it really is a rare first edition 17th century book, you're going to be very careful with it. You're going to get it insured. You're going to make sure it's it's protected from fire and theft and so forth. On the other hand, if it's a cheaply manufactured uh, piece of pottery, you might just put it in your garage to keep all those odd nuts and bolts that you never know what to do with. Mm. Uh, How you treat it is going to depend on what its value, what its worth is, which depends on what kind of thing it is and where it comes from. Now, what does all this have to do with anthropology? What does it have to do with the topics of uh, sexual ethics and so forth that we're going to be looking at later today? Well, the relevance is this. These four questions can be asked about human beings as well. The same four questions can be asked about human beings. Uh, What kind of things are we? The question of our nature. Where did we come from? The question of origins. What is the value? What is the worth of a human being? And how should we treat it? And these four questions are interconnected in the same way as for an antique. In order to answer the third and fourth questions, You've got to answer the questions of nature. You've got to answer the questions of origin. And so that's what we're going to be doing. We've been exploring this topic of anthropology, asking these questions about human nature. Just consider some of the great cultural and moral debates of our time. Abortion, euthanasia, racial equality and civil rights, sexual morality and the the sexual revolution, sexual liberty, Religious freedom, environmentalism, animal rights, research on embryos, genetic enhancement, genetic modification, gender identity. All of these issues and many others turn crucially on the issue of anthropology. Anthropology, the the nature of human beings, what we are, where we came from, why we're here. And the reality is that in our culture today, there are multiple anthropologists. There are multiple competing anthropologists, competing views of human nature. And different positions on ethical and political matters flow out of these anthropologists. And that is why we find ourselves in such a position today, where there are such polarized positions on abortion, euthanasia, sexual morality, and so on down the list. So there's a confusion, a plurality of anthropologists in our society today competing with one another. But anthropologists don't come out of nowhere. They aren't created out of nothing, as it were. Anthropologies aren't self-sustaining and free-floating. Rather, they are grounded in something even deeper. Every anthropology, every theory of mankind, theory of human nature, is situated within, arises from and finds its justification within a broader worldview, a broader worldview, uh, a, a worldview in the sense of a, a wider perspective on things like ultimate reality, ultimate truth, ultimate meaning, ultimate value. Anthropologists are situated within broader worldviews, broader perspectives on all of reality. And so what I want to do in this first session this morning is to consider three prominent worldviews that we find in our culture today and the competing views of human nature that they embody and entail. So three worldviews and three anthropologies that flow out of those worldviews. Those uh, three Worldviews uh, are naturalism, postmodernism, and Christian theism or biblical theism. Uh, there are certainly other worldviews in our culture today. I talked about some of them over our weekend sessions, if you were uh, at any of those. But, but the ones I want to focus on that really have the most um, significance for the way people think about human nature will be naturalism, postmodernism, and Christian theism. And What I want to suggest at the end of this is that only one of these three worldviews, only one of these three worldviews can supply any firm basis for human dignity and human rights and for answering the great ethical questions of our time. And you can probably guess which one that's going to be, right? No spoiler alert required here. Well, let's back up a bit though and just define some terms, talk a little bit about what a worldview is. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I'm just going to give a a basic uh, definition and understanding what I mean when I talk about a worldview. A worldview is an overall philosophical outlook on the world. It is an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. A worldview concerns not only what is the case, but also what ought to be the case. That is, a worldview will say, this is how things are ultimately, but also this is how things should be as well. There are both sort of facts or basic, actually metaphysical claims, and there are normative claims. So so a worldview is partly a description of the way things are at a very high level, but also it has a value system in it as well, what we call normative claims. Now, when we talk about worldviews, we can talk about a worldview of a particular person. We can talk about the perspective of an individual person. Each individual has a worldview, their fundamental guiding beliefs and assumptions and ideas and values that they bring to interpreting the world. But we can also talk about worldviews in a sort of generalized (coughs) fashion. Uh, We can talk about general types of worldviews. And that is what I'm doing here. So when I speak about naturalism and postmodernism, and Christian theism, I'm talking about certain types of worldviews that are shared by people, certain people, and that, that are, that are uh, sort of the ideal cases of what people hold to in our society today. Now, the content of a worldview can be described in different ways. There are different ways we can analyze a worldview. There's different ways that we can sort of break it down to its fundamental ingredients. But I'm going to take this tack just to keep things relatively simple. I'm going to explore each of these three worldviews under four headings. Okay. First, its view of God. Second, its view of ultimate reality, what's ultimately real that grounds everything else. Thirdly, its view of truth and knowledge, where truth comes from, how we know what we know. And then fourthly, this worldview's view of goodness, what is the highest good, the ultimate good, what is its basic value system. So that's how I'm going to break down these worldviews. God, ultimate reality, truth, knowledge, goodness, and value. Any worldview or what's sometimes called a world and life view will incorporate views on all of these areas in some fashion or other. So let's dive in with the first of these, naturalism. Naturalism. Naturalism is in the sense a very simple worldview. In fact, I'd say it's too simple. It's an impoverished worldview But naturalism makes this fundamental claim, only the natural universe exists, only the natural universe exists. What do we mean by natural, or what do naturalists mean by natural? Well, a fairly standard definition for those who hold this worldview is something is natural if it can be studied and in principle explained by the natural sciences, the natural sciences or the empirical sciences, the sciences that use sense observations to formulate theories about the world, the physical world. So naturalism says only things that can be explained by basically physics, chemistry, and biology. Physics, chemistry, and biology are the natural sciences and everything that exists can be explained in those terms. A very common view among naturalists is that all of the sciences can be reduced ultimately to physics, so biology, just actually reduces to chemistry, and chemistry can be further explained in terms of (coughs) physics. So, very common view for naturalists to be physicalists. Everything just reduces to physical entities and physical laws. Here's what one naturalist philosopher said. Uh, His name is Alex Rosenberg. He teaches at Duke uh, University. Uh, He's a philosopher of science. He's a naturalist. He says this. The physical facts fix all the facts. Physical facts fix all the facts. In other words, every single fact, if it truly is a fact, then it's explained by physical facts. So the fact that you love your spouse is it ultimately explained by physics, if that is a fact. If we can say that's really a fact, then somehow it's, it's explicable in terms of the laws of physics and the physical entities, that says physical particles. Naturalism is uh, very closely associated with a view known as scientism. scientism is the idea that scientific knowledge is the paradigm for human knowledge. Scientific knowledge is the highest form of knowledge, the most reliable form of knowledge. In a most radical form, scientism says that scientific knowledge is the only knowledge. Unless you can prove it scientifically, you don't really know it. The worldview of naturalism was uh, neatly summed up by Carl Sagan in his book and TV series, Cosmos. You may remember the tagline, the cosmos, is all that was or is or ever will be. The cosmos, the physical universe, that's all that was or is or ever will be. That's, that's the worldview of naturalism. And it's very, very common among intellectuals today, particularly those in, in the sciences. So what does naturalism say in these uh, areas that I talked about a moment ago? What is naturalism view of God? Well, very simple, there is no God. For a naturalist is by definition an atheist. Because God, if God exists, is a supernatural being, a transcendent, not a physical being. So, for the naturalist, there's a very simple answer. There is no God, there's no transcendent creator of the universe. What is naturalism's view of ultimate reality? Just physics, material stuff, only physical, material entities or beings exist. For the naturalist, ultimate reality is an impersonal reality. There's no ultimate reason, there's no ultimate morality, there's no ultimate purpose or meaning in the universe, just impersonal, stupid, non-conscious material stuff. That's where everything came from. What about naturalism's view of truth and knowledge? Well, I I really uh, made that point a moment ago. According to the naturalist, Science is the way to go. Science answers all our questions. Only science gives us really reliable, trustworthy knowledge and truth. So naturalists will typically be empiricists. You can only know things through sense experience. And when you formulate them into rigorous scientific theories, then you can call it really knowledge. But what about goodness and value? What would be a naturalist view of what is good and what is valuable, where values come from? Well, a naturalist will say, whatever goodness is, it has nothing to do with God. Morality doesn't come from the commands or the will of some divine being, because there is no God. So a naturalist is going to have to offer, offer some naturalistic explanation of morality, of values. And if you get different answers to this, um, some, some naturalists will be out and out nihilists. They'll say, there are, actually is no moral There are no moral values. It's an illusion. It's an evolutionary adaptation that we think in these moral terms, but it doesn't connect with reality. So some naturalists will actually get outright nihilists or deny that there is any real moral values. However, other naturalists will try and salvage some sort of moral system, and typically there are two answers here. One is subjectivism, that morality is explained in terms of feelings, sentiments. Moral goodness is ultimately a matter of personal preference. So what is good is what you like, what you desire, what your preferences are, but of course they vary from person to person. Or the other popular view is utilitarianism, where moral goodness is defined in terms of uh, corporate happiness. Uh, the, gr- the, the, the motto of the utilitarian is the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So whatever, whatever action we do, as long as it's creating more happiness than the alternatives for everyone involved, then that's the right thing to do. So again, it tries to ground morality in human feelings, in human pleasures. Uh, Maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That is the utilitarian way. So that's the worldview of naturalism. So what does this mean for anthropology? What would be the anthropology that flows out of a naturalist worldview? Well, let's return to the four questions that I introduced at the beginning. (coughs) First, what kind of beings are we? What is our nature, according to naturalism? Well, the naturalist will say, we are physical, material beings, and that's all there is to us. There is no soul, there's no spirit, there's nothing other than the body. We are our bodies, that's all there is to us. So, no non-physical aspect. In fact, some radical naturalists will deny even that the mind is real, because the mind isn't a physical thing. It can't be explained in material terms. That's a very radical view of naturalism. Um, the, the naturalist view of, of human nature was uh, rather bluntly summed up by Richard Dawkins. In an interview, Richard Dawkins, a notorious Darwinian atheist and critic of, of religion. Uh, in an interview, Dawkins was asked, what happens after you die? And Dawkins replied, you decompose you decompose. And from his point of view, that's it. There's just your body, it rots, that's the end of the story. But there's a little more to the story here, and that's the evolutionary story, the evolutionary explanation. For the naturalist, where did we come from, or what, what is it that we, we fundamentally are? We're, we're biological organisms, we're animals, we're just one species of animal among others. We're advanced, complex mammals, among other uh, ape-like creatures. And that relates to the question of where we came from. The naturalist has a story, has an origin story of where we came from. It has its own uh, creation myth, and it is the theory of evolution. We are the products of mindless, undirected, purposeless evolutionary processes. Um, this is what one uh, well known, influential uh, evolutionary theorist said. This is George Gaylord Simpson. He said this Man is the result of a purposeless, and natural process that did not have him in mind. So we are the product of of millions of years of unguided evolutionary processes that just happened to produce us. We're here by chance, by sheer dumb luck through natural selection and genetic mutation. That's our origin story. So what is our value? What is our worth? Well, for the naturalist, objectively speaking, we have no uh, value because the universe is just a conglomeration of physical entities there's no objective value system that you can appeal to there are no objective absolute values in the naturalist way of thinking so if we have any value at all it must be subjective value value, the only value there is is the value that's in the eye of the beholder we we project values you are valuable if someone values you if someone considers you worthwhile if someone has positive feelings towards you So there's only a subjective value in in this way of thinking. And how should we be treated? How should human beings treat one another? Well, for many naturalists they'll say there's no real answer to that question. Certainly there's no scientific answer. Science doesn't tell you how you ought to treat people. Science doesn't deliver moral precepts. There's no objective scientific answer in like fact, some naturalists will say it's just a pseudo-question, sort of question you shouldn't really be asking because it doesn't fit into your way of your, your, your system, your world view. But nevertheless, because naturalists still want to give some sort of answer to this question, they'll run it through their preferred moral theory. So uh, if they are subjectivists, then they will say, well, you should, uh, we should treat people as we prefer to treat them, whatever our preferences are. If we prefer to treat people well, then that's how we ought to treat them. Now, the obvious problem with that is that it can lead to some quite abhorrent positions. Uh, Adolf Hitler preferred to treat Jews in a particular way. Was that right for him? Well, we don't want to draw that conclusion, or some naturalist will bite the bullet on that. So subjectivism is a bit problematic on this front. And then utilitarianism. Utilitarianism will say we should treat people in a way that promotes the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So whatever, whatever kind of treatment will make most people happy in the long run, that's what we should do. The problem with that is that it means that human beings are, are only means to an end. They only have an instrumental value. That means if you, can, if you can oppress a minority in order to produce happiness for the majority, then you're justified in doing so. That can lead to all kinds of abuses of power in a utilitarian system. But anyway, this is is how naturalism's anthropology flows out of its underlying view of God, ultimate reality, knowledge, and value. Let's turn now to the second second prominent worldview in our day, and that is postmodernism. Now, I'm a little hesitant to use the term postmodernism, because it's such a flexible term, it's, it's used to describe all kinds of positions. Someone once said that trying to define postmodernism is like trying to nail jello to the wall. You, know, you just can't get a handle on it, because it's, uh, it's used to cover such a range of positions. So I'm going to take a liberty, and I'm just going to define it in a way that I think captures a, a prominent way of thinking in the world today, and it's this. Postmodernism is the view that there are no absolute norms, And there's no objective reality. There are no absolute norms and no objective reality in the sense of a reality that just is what it is, independent of how we think and feel about it. There are no absolute standards that are universal, that are we are all subject to. And for the for the thoroughgoing postmodernist, there is no reality that exists independently of us, independent of our thoughts and language. One of the characteristics of postmodernism is that reality, truth, facts are shaped by us. They're not things that we go out there to discover, but rather we create reality through the way that we inter- interact with our experiences of the world. You may remember the TV show um, uh, um, The X-Files. Remember The X-Files? It had, had a tagline, uh, the truth is out there. Right? This was what Mulder, I think he had a poster on his wall, the truth is out there. Well, the postmodernist denies that. The truth isn't something objective out there to be discovered, rather, it's something that we ourselves construct in the way that we think about the world. What is real, what is true, is ultimately up to us. It's defined by us. So, what does this mean for the postmodernist view of God? Well, for the postmodernist, there is no absolute God. There cannot be. The only God or gods there could be would be our constructions, our projections. There is a God if the way that you think about the world is is in a God-like way. If you think about a god created world, then then there's a God for you, but that's not true for anyone. Postmodernism on the surface can seem quite pluralistic and liberal. Well, if you believe in a God, then that's true for you, it's not true for me, but if you want to believe in God, that's fine. But actually, Postmodernism is absolutist and exclusivist to the core when you press on it because it cannot tolerate an absolute God. An absolute God who objectively exists and has authority over us. Any lesser God, any God of our construction is acceptable but an absolute God who has authority over us is not permiss- permissible. What about its view of ultimate reality? Well, for the postmodernist, there is, as I say, no uh, absolute reality or objective reality. There are only relative realities. If we're going to talk about reality, it would be your reality, my reality, or the reality of some particular community or culture. Reality is always going to be relative, either to an individual, to a cultural outlook, to a community, or something like that. There's no objective, absolute reality that's the same for everyone. So in one sense there's no ultimate reality for postmodernism, but in another sense there are multiple ultimate reality is, because what is ultimate is simply what's ultimate for you, the way that you construct the world. Everyone has an ultimate, but that ultimate can vary from one person to another. So postmodernism really equivocates on this question of ultimate reality. It depends how you ask the question. Truth and knowledge. As I said, for postmodernism, the truth isn't some objective thing out there to be discovered. Truth is, in fact, a creation. A human creation is a social construction. Something is true if we have decided that it's true, or we have agreed that it is true. Either individually, you decide that something is true for you, maybe on a pragmatic basis, this is what works for me, so that's what's true for me, or uh, collectively a society has a particular view of reality that is true for people in that society. But there's no such thing as knowledge in the traditional sense of discovering objective truth. Rather, postmodernists will tend to say that knowledge is actually an attempt to, 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 to exert power over other people. To make a knowledge claim is to try to, to impose your truth on someone else. So the idea of knowledge is sort of discredited in the postmodernist way of thinking. And then we have the postmodernist view of goodness and value. Um, For the postmodernist, again, there are no absolutes, there's no absolute goodness, there's no objective goodness or value. If something is valuable, it's because it's valuable to us. We make things valuable by projecting our desires, our goals, our preferences on them. Nothing in this way of thinking has objective intrinsic value simply by what it is. Value is like truth. It is a human creation. It's not something imposed or discoverable from outside of us, it is what we make valuable. And again, this has huge implications for anthropology. What would be postmodernism's anthropology? How would a postmodernist, someone with this worldview, answer these four questions about human beings? First of all, what kind of beings are we? Well, let me back up a minute before I get to that question. The the basic postmodernist view is going to be this. Human nature is not something defined independently of us. That's the underlying presupposition. Human nature is not something that's just a given, that's independent of us. It's not something that comes to us by the decree of God, or by objective scientific facts, or anything like that. What we call human nature, if we can speak about human nature at all, some postmodernists will go so far as to say there really is no such thing as human nature, but if we do talk about human nature, It's going to be relative, it's going to be fluid, it's ultimately up for grabs because it's going to be something that we ourselves define. So, now to get to the questions. What kind of beings are we on this view? Simple. We are whatever we define ourselves to be. On this way of thinking, we define human nature. It's not a given, it is something that is up to us, either individually This would be the existentialist view. Existentialists would say you get to define yourself. Uh, The motto of existentialism was existence precedes essence. So you exist and then you define your essence. You define what it means to be human by the way that you live in the world. Or there are collectivist views where society defines human nature for people within that society or within that culture. But again, it's up to us. We define ourselves. Where did we come from? What is the postmodernist origin story? Well, it doesn't really matter. It <laughs> doesn't really matter where we came from. Uh, there's no uh, objective or verifiable truth about that. It could be evolution. It could be aliens who seeded life on this earth. It could be any number of things. doesn't really matter, except this. There's one thing it cannot be, divine creation. That's the one thing that's off limits. You cannot say that human beings are divine creation because then, there, then human nature would be defined by God rather than by us. It would be something defined outside of us. So anything except some sort of creation, theistic creation story is, is acceptable here. What is our value? What is our worth? Well again, it's down to us. Our value, the value of a human being is whatever value we ascribe to ourselves. If we define what a human being is, but it's also up to us to say what the value of a human being is. And we have no value that is independent of our preferences and our judgments about what is true, what is right, where we want to go in the world. We value ourselves, and those values of course, can vary from person to person. Each person has his own preferences, his own set of goals, his own value judgments. Value can vary from person to person. It can vary from culture to culture. And so again, this is fluid, it's relative, it's up for grabs. And then the last question, how should we be treated? How should we be treated uh, if this is our view of human nature? Well, this is particularly tricky for a postmodernist because of course there are no absolute norms. There's no absolute objective answer to this question. But the typical answer is this. We should treat people with tolerance and without judgment. We should be absolutely tolerant of one another and we shouldn't make judgments. We shouldn't impose our values on other people. That's the the general approach. Tolerance and uh, no judgment from one person to another. Well, I've given you an overview of these two worldviews and these two anthropologies that flow out of them. But let me say something about something that they fundamentally share. As we've seen, they're both godless worldviews. They both deny that there is a personal absolute God. However, there are some superficial differences between them. Naturalism, it seems, has a very low view of humanity. We are just evolved creatures, highly evolved creatures. We may be more evolved than other creatures, but we're just physical beings. On the face of it, naturalism ascribes human beings a relatively low view, value. Man is dirt. Whereas postmodernism almost treats us as having godlike powers. We are creators, we make reality. We make things true. We make things good by the way that we think about them. So, postmodernism seems to ascribe us uh, a, a very high view. We are the creators of our own reality. And yet, despite these superficial differences, there is a deeper commonality. Both reject the idea of a personal, transcendent creator who defines reality for us, both affirm human autonomy. That is, we are our own standards. We are our own rulers. There's no higher authority. There's no higher standard over us. So they're both committed deeply to human authority and both ultimately fail to account for the objective value of human beings and human life. Both fundamentally fail to explain why we really are important and why there are certain ways that we should live and shouldn't live. Both worldviews, in a sense, try to engage in a, a, in a metaphysical alchemy. You know, tr- alchemy is trying to get precious metals out of base metals. Both naturalism and postmodernism are struggling to derive meaning and value from an ultimately meaningless and valueless universe. They try to do it, but they cannot succeed, because they do not have a god who can ground ultimate meaning and value value. And so they face a dilemma. If you reject the idea of a personal transcendent God, then either you have to make man nothing or you have to make man everything. Man is either promoted to the level of deity or demoted to the level of dirt. When we reflect on these two worldviews and the way that they wrestle with the the, the question of human nature, It's actually quite helpful, I think, to pause and reflect on what the psalmist tells us about human nature in contrast to these two worldviews. Let me read to you the words of Psalm 8. You'll be very, very familiar with this psalm, of course, but uh, I think it's useful to read it again in light of what has just been said. So Psalm 8 begins this way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So the first thing the psalmist does is acknowledge God. There is a Lord, a Lord God, who is over heavens and earth. And then he continues, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? How could could you care for such small creatures as us? It, It seems as though the psalmist is going to say man is very small, very valueless, insignificant. But then he continues, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So the psalmist gets it right where it ought to be. Man is not God, but neither is man nothing. Man is a creation of God. He has worth, he has is made a little lower than the heavenly beings. But he is not himself God. Well, that really sets things up for talking about this third worldview, Christian theism or biblical theism, the biblical worldview. Let's summarize the worldview that the Christian scriptures give us and think about the anthropology that flows out of that. So beginning with Christian theism's view of God. Of course, the most fundamental truth of the Christian worldview is that there is a God. There is a God. That's how... Scripture begins, in the beginning, God. And there is one and only one God. Biblical monotheism. There aren't many gods, there is one and only one God. And uh, this God is not just any kind of God. Scripture has many things to tell us about the attributes of God. Uh, this is how the Westminster Larger Catechism sums up the question of the nature of God. God is a spirit In and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Many important attributes that scripture gives us uh, to tell us what this God is like. But are some particular things that we should note about the biblical view of God. God is both personal and absolute. God is an absolute being in that he, is, he defines everything. He isn't relative to anything. He isn't dependent on anything. We have an absolute and that absolute is God Himself. He is the ultimate standard of all things. But this is not an impersonal absolute. This is a personal God. He is a person. He has a will. He has uh, intellect. He has affections. God is a personal, absolute being. God is both transcendent and imminent. God is above his creation. He stands above his creation. He isn't, there's no confusion between God and the creation, and yet God is imminent within his creation. He's present. He's intimately and personally involved with his creation and particularly with human affairs. And also very distinctive of the Christian worldview that God is not a An undifferentiated unity as with Islam but rather God is both one and many the doctrine of the Trinity there's one God in three distinct persons Father, Son and Holy Spirit and all this being true it follows that God is the sovereign creator of everything else everything else that exists other than God is the creation of God everything else other than God is absolutely dependent upon God and defined by God sovereign creator of everything. And that has implications for ultimate reality. What is Christian theism's view of ultimate reality? God, of course, is the ultimate reality. That's how we answer that question. God alone is self-existent, self-sufficient. God is the source, the author, and the definer of every other reality. Anything else that exists only exists because of God. Everything other than God is absolutely dependent upon God. And fundamental to the Christian view of reality is that there is a clear distinction between the creator and the creation. Unlike, for example, pantheistic worldviews, where God and nature are one, the Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created everything else the heavens and the earth. There's a distinction between the creator and his creation. Again, that's foundational to a Christian worldview. What does this imply then about truth and knowledge? Well, what is the Christian view of truth? We might say truth is just what corresponds to reality. Something's true, it corresponds to reality. Certainly that's correct, that's part of the picture, but I think we want to say something deeper on a Christian view in that truth ultimately depends on God. Uh, God is the ground of truth. God doesn't, truth doesn't exist independently of God. God's mind is the ultimate mind that defines everything and is the ultimate ground of truth. Truth is coherent because God's mind is orderly and coherent. And truth corresponds to reality because it's God himself who defines reality. God knew what the creation would be before he created it. He had a plan. He defined every truth about the creation. So God is the ultimate ground of truth. But we can know truth because we are the creations of God. Because God created us and created us in his image. Our minds are derivative of God's mind. And God gives us knowledge through divine revelation. We can know things about God, we can know things about this world because God has revealed them to us. So uh, Christianity has what we would call a revelational epistemology. We can know things because God is the ground of truth and has revealed truth to us. And then lastly, Christian theism's view of goodness and value. What is good and what is right? Well, we want to say not merely that God is good, but that God defines goodness. God is goodness. God is the absolute norm or the absolute standard. He is the ultimate standard of what is true and good and beautiful. Something is valuable if God values it. Not because we value it, but because God values it. If God delights in it, then it is a good thing. And what does God delight in more than anything else? Himself, right? He glorifies himself. He delights in himself, and that is why God is supremely valuable, supremely good. Moral goodness, what is right, what is wrong for us, is grounded in God's character and God's will. God gives us commandments, and those commandments aren't arbitrary, they're a reflection of his character. So, for example, God commands us to love one another. Why? Because God is love. Because it reflects his character. So to to do what is right is to act in a way that is holy, and holiness is defined by God. This is the Christian view of goodness and uh, and uh, morality uh, and value. So, that brings us to the question of anthropology, a biblical anthropology. A biblical anthropology is going to flow out of a biblical worldview, a Christian theistic worldview. So, how would we answer these four questions that I outlined at the beginning? How do, what, what, what would a biblical anthropology say in response to these questions? The first question, remember, is the question of nature. What kind of beings are we? Well, the first thing to say from a Christian perspective is simply this. We're creatures. We are fundamentally creatures. We We exist because we have been created by God. So we are creatures. That's the first thing we need to acknowledge. But more specifically, we are a very special kind of creature. We are creatures made in the image of God, made in the likeness of God. Genesis 1... 26 and 27, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and so forth. And then God did exactly that. God created man in his own image, the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is utterly profound. It has profound implications for ethics, not just that we are creatures, but that we are creatures made in the image and likeness of God. But there are further things that we can say. According to the biblical view, we are gendered creatures. We are created male and female. Or perhaps we should say male or female. These are the two options. Um, Notice exactly what is said in in those verses in Genesis. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's actually a parallelism here. The human race is structured around a basic Gender binary, man and woman, male and female, and as, as I said, there's a there's a parallelism in that very verse. In the image of God, He created them, Him, male and female, He created them. Gender is closely tied to the image of God. The image of God is reflected in mankind through this gender binary, and also what it underscores is the basic equality of male and female. Man and woman are equally created in the image of God. The image of God is reflected in both man and woman, but particularly when they come together. What else can we say about ourselves? What kind of beings are we? We are social creatures. We are social creatures. We're not designed to be alone. We're designed by God to be in community. Remember what God says to the man in Genesis 2. Actually, he says it not so much to the man, but to to himself. It's not good for the man to be alone not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so we have the creation of the woman as a fitting companion for the man, and thereafter the institution of marriage and family, which become the building blocks of human society. Another thing that we want to say about our nature is that we are not merely physical beings, as naturalism tries to tell us. We are both physical. We have physical bodies but we also have a spiritual side, we have a soul, we are body and soul, and this is reflected throughout scripture, a, a biblical dualism, body and soul. And then the last thing we need to acknowledge, of course, is the fall. Not just we are creatures, not just creatures made in the image of God, but we are fallen creatures, we are sinful creatures, we have fallen from the glory that we originally had, and now we are in bondage to sin. That's part of our anthropology as well. Next question, where did we come from? What is the Christian origin story? Well, the Christian worldview has a very distinctive story, a distinctive origin story. We were created, of course, but we were specially created. We were specially created. That is, we weren't created indirectly through evolutionary processes, as some Christians have tried to argue, I think much misguidedly. Rather, there's a clear boundary We are told that the man was created out of the dust of the earth directly, not out of prior hominids or animal forms. And so there's a boundary between mankind and the animal world. There's not a continuum. There's a clear distinction between man and the animal world. And we are descended from one man and from one woman. There's a unity, a fundamental unity of the human race, descended from one original couple. This is taught in a number of places in Scripture, But this, too, has tremendous ethical implications. For example, racial equality. Racial equality is grounded not just in the image of God, but also the fundamental organic unity of the family of mankind descended from one man and one woman. It also has very important theological implications as well, this idea of being descended from one man and one woman in the the doctrine of the fall, original sin, and so forth. So then, what is our value? What is our worth, according to a Biblical anthropology? Well, of course, we have enormous value, not merely as creatures, just the fact that we are creatures made by God makes us significant, but as creatures made in the image of God. This gives us great value, great worth. We see this in at least two places in Scripture. First, we see it in the institution of capital punishment. This may seem counterintuitive, capital and punishment. The death penalty implies that we're worth something. Yes, it does. Because if you remember what, what is said in Genesis 9, where um, God says, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his be blood be shed. And the reason is given, for God made man in his own in- image. It's precisely because taking a human life is such a serious crime, an offense against the image of God, that it requires such a serious Penalty, and this is actually underscored in the Mosaic Law in a number of uh, penalties. For example, the difference: uh, if if a, if, a, uh, if you destroy um, a man's, if you kill a man's oxen, then you have to make restitution. But if your oxen kills a man, then then you are uh, on the on the hook for the life of that man. There's a, a difference even in the penalties in the Mosaic Law. But secondly, we see the value of human beings in the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement, the incarnation and the atonement. The value that God puts on human life is nowhere demonstrated more dramatically than in the fact that God himself was willing to take on a human nature and make an atoning sacrifice to save human beings from eternal hell and bring them into eternal fellowship with himself. To put it bluntly, God did not take on a canine nature and make atonement for dogs. We may love our dogs, and they may love us, but God did make not, not, not make dogs in his own image. He made humans in their own image, and he was willing to make that sacrifice, to take on a human nature himself in order to save us. That gives us great dignity and worth. And then, fourthly, how should we be treated? How should we be treated if all this is true? Well, we should treat each other, of course, then with great respect dignity and care, precisely because we are creatures made in the image of God. And so we should make every effort to protect and preserve human life. There is really something sacred about human life. It's not the ultimate value. Only God has ultimate value. But humans have very high value. Human life has a high value. It is to be protected. It is to be preserved. And that means we should promote what is now commonly called human flourishing, some people don't like this term, I understand why, it's a little jargonish and sometimes it's co opted for purposes that we might not endorse, but the idea is simply that God has a design for human life, he wants human beings not just to live but to flourish, to flourish, to fill the earth, subdue it, to, to prosper, but on his terms rather than on their terms. And certainly we must treat our fellow humans as having immeasurably more value than non-human animals. Yes, we care for the animal world, yes, we care for the environment But none of this has more value than a human being. But at the same time, we must treat each other as fellow creatures, not as gods. We treat each other as fellow creatures, not as gods. We are created in the divine image, but we are not ourselves divine. We are made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Lower, not equal to the heavenly beings. So we need to recognize our place as creatures, creatures of great value, but nonetheless creatures are not as gods. So we do not uh, idolize ourselves, other people, human society. We recognize where our true value comes from. Well, time is, uh, is upon us. Uh, I was going to say a little bit about Islam and Judaism, what's distinctive about Christianity. We'll leave that for the Q&A if you want to ask about why, why Christianity has the edge on Islam and Judaism here. Let me just sum up what I've said here very briefly. Our fundamental anthropology is going to have huge implications. How we view human nature, human origins, human characteristics, is going to have huge implications. Ethical implications, cultural implications, missional implications. How we view the mission of the church in the world is going to depend on our fundamental anthropology. And our anthropology must be situated in a broader worldview, and it must be a biblical worldview. Naturalism and postmodernism are sterile soils. Nothing can truly grow in them. Only biblical Christian anthropology can account for human value, human dignity, human rights, and human responsibilities. And so our anthropology must serve as the foundation for biblical ethics.